I used to have a pastor who would say, you know, it's a dangerous thing that you're here this morning. You're hearing the word of God. This morning we're starting a series in the parables of Jesus. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at some of Jesus' most unknown parables. But this morning, you're going to be familiar, maybe many of you, if you've spent a lot of time in Bible studies or in the church, it's the parable of the sower. So it's not very unknown, but I would wager that it is one of the most dangerous. And if you have your Bibles, that parable can be found in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. And as you pull out your Bibles and flip there, let's pray to God that he would be our teacher this morning. Jesus, that truth that we just sang, that you have a beautiful name, that your name is the name above all names, that you are the King of kings, you're the Lord of lords, yet you're the Savior of the world, and you're also a humble teacher who came to show us what the kingdom of God is like, what your kingdom is like. Jesus, we need your help now. We need the help of your spirit. You made us that promise early on that your word does not return void. And we need that promise to be true this morning, that you would affect our hearts by the teaching of this word and that the light of the gospel, the light of your message would shine in our hearts. We pray that you would guide us, you would teach us this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus and also in the name of your Holy Spirit and by his power. Amen. So when uh, I was younger, I was a huge fan of politics. Not so much anymore. But when I, was, when I was younger, in the year 2000, I actually stayed up till about 2 a.m. wondering what was going to happen against George Bush and Al Gore in the state of Florida. And it took a couple months to figure out the conclusion to that. But I did love politics. And in 2018, actually, I think it was 2018, maybe it was a little bit before that. When I was 18 years old, I was able to vote in my first election. And so one of the major political candidates was coming to Colorado, and I wanted to visit his campaign. So my friend, Nathan, and I, we went to where he was uh, having his stump speech. And like, you know, all 18-year-olds, we figured out a way to sneak behind stage (laughs) and get a kind of firsthand look at what this person's campaign looked like and what this person's uh, political party was all about. And we were back there and we were thinking, oh, we're insiders. We're looking to our right and we're looking to our left and there's people in suits And we see, you know, this person's family and his friends and they're smiling and they're all eating, you know, these nice appetizers that are laid out back there. And and we're watching this person give his stump speech from behind the stage. We felt like insiders. And then the speech was over. Everybody's giving him a round of applause and we all line up in a line. And me and my friend Nate are the very last ones in this line. And this candidate is coming off the stage and he goes behind stage and he starts shaking the hands of his friends and, you know, his close political alliance. And he's moving down the line and we see him coming. And then all of a sudden he gets to the last person before me and Nate. And then he looks at us and does a complete 180, (laughs) turns back and goes into the dressing room. (laughs) So we thought we were insiders, but we were brought to real awareness in that moment that we were very much outsiders. Now, there's this kind of sentiment today that when it comes to faith, when it comes to spirituality, there really are no insiders and outsiders, right? Maybe you've heard sentiments like these. How can there be just one true faith, asked Blair, a 24-year-old woman living in Manhattan. It's arrogant to say that your religion is superior and to try and convert anyone else to it. Surely 
all religions are equally true and valid for meeting the needs of their particular followers. Or maybe you have the sentiment, or you've heard this sentiment of a man named Jeff. I agree. Religious, religious exclusivity is not just narrow, it's dangerous. Jeff was also a 20-something British man living in New York City. Religion has led to untold strife, division, and conflict. It may be the greatest enemy to peace in the world. If religious people continue to insist that they have the truth, that they are right and on the inside, the world will never know peace. Do those sentiments sound familiar today? I'd imagine for some of us in here that maybe those are your sentiments. Maybe that's what you come in here with this morning. And if that's you, we're, we're glad that you're here. Because after all, we think, right, we live in a world and we live next to people who are well-intentioned people, good people, people we work with, people we love, family members. And the idea that there are religious insiders and outsiders seems very exclusive and sometimes it does sound very dangerous. Or maybe those are the words of friends and family members that you know, coworkers. Maybe it's your 20-year-old who went to college for the first time and even though they grew up sitting in church and praying prayers and singing praises to Jesus, now it just seems like that's just one option among many. Houston Smith, he's a uh, author and a religious studies teacher. He has a book entitled The World's Religions, wrote that it is possible to climb life's mountains from any side, but when the top is reached, the different religious and philosophical trails ultimately converge. In other words, what Smith was saying there is that yes, there are different faiths and beliefs throughout the world, and yes, they do believe different things, but those differences are no big deal. That those differences, in the end, When it comes to us making it to the top, all our differences become superficial. In other words, everyone is an insider. And those those sound like comforting words, don't they? But are those words true? Do all forms of spirituality, faiths, and philosophies lead to the same place? Are we all heading in the same direction? Or are we all insiders? Are you on the right direction? Are you on the right path? When it comes to your faith in God, are you on the right path? That's what Jesus would have you consider this morning. And it's an important question to ask, right? Because I would wager that if it came to your financial security and your retirement, you would seriously ask yourself, am I on the right track, right? If it came to your 401k and making sure that when you're 65, you can pull out a social security, you would meet with Chuck, right? That's the name of every financial advisor. You'd meet with Chuck, (laughs) right? And you would ask him, hey, when I retire, can I downsize my house and, you know, pull out that equity and and live off that? You would ask him that question because when it comes to investing, there are good choices and bad choices, aren't there? There are bad choices. There are wise choices and foolish choices, dangerous choices and safe choices, choices that will benefit you and choices that will harm you. So why is it that when it comes to spiritual health, We presume that we will be okay. We say things like, surely I'm heading in the right direction. Surely I'm an insider. You know, Jesus regularly challenged people on this. Regularly. He regularly challenged people. And he makes it clear that when it comes to following him, there are indeed insiders and outsiders that you can, in fact, be on the wrong path. You can. The parable of the sower begins in Luke chapter 8 and in verse 1 of chapter 8, we're told that Jesus was going through cities and villages, and what he was doing was he was proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. That message of the kingdom of God, which is the message that in Jesus, who's God's son, 
God himself has entered history, he has entered the world, and he is seeking to redeem people to himself and to restore creation. And we're told, beginning in verse 2 and 3, that he was accompanied by 12 people, his closest disciples, and he was accompanied by a band of women, Mary called Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. And they were going through these towns, verse 4, and as they were going through these towns, a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him. So you see, here are people. Here are people from town after town, from all walks of life, from all places throughout the ancient world, and they've heard about the healings of Jesus. They've heard that Jesus is this miracle worker who has powerful teaching, who stands up to religious authorities. And for the first time recorded in all three Gospels, all three Gospels start with this parable, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus begins teaching this story, this parable, and he does it to illustrate a solemn truth. It's a very solemn truth. It's a sad truth that not all people are spiritual insiders. That the crowd, that in that crowd, not everyone had a sincere heart and was on the right path. That in this room this morning, There are some of us who are not on the right path. That among those who call themselves Christian, some of them are not on the right path. That some of those who call themselves spiritual are not on the right path. In fact, Jesus says in this parable that your spiritual position, whether you find yourself inside the kingdom of God or outside the kingdom of God, is determined by how you hear his message. That's how you know you're in the kingdom of God is how you hear. How you hear. So Jesus says, listen up, listen up. And he gives them this parable, this crowd, this parable. He says this, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some of the seed fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil, and it grew and yielded a hundredfold. And he said, as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in times of testing fall away. And as for what fell on the thorns... They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So we see here, verses 4 through 8, Jesus gives the parable. He says that a sower went out to sow seeds, and these seeds fall on four different types of soil. Then in verses 9 through 10, Jesus explains what the purpose of this parable is for, and all parables are for. And then in verses 11 through 14, Jesus says these four soils represent four different ways that you and I can respond to the message of Jesus. And the result is 
in our hearing, we either find ourselves insiders in the kingdom of God or outsiders in the kingdom of God. You know, I want to spend our time this morning looking at these four soils. And when you look at these four soils, they are intended to be a mirror. Okay? They're intended to make us examine our own hearts, to see things that oftentimes we think are too dangerous to look at, too uncomfortable to look at. And another way of saying this is that this parable is not meant to be applied to the person sitting next to you. Okay? It's a very personal parable. You know, when I was in political science class in college, somebody had cheated on an exam. I don't know who. I don't know who, okay? <laughs> but after this exam, our, our teacher got up to the front of the class, our professor, and she said, you know what? We, we realized that there were two exams that looked remarkably similar. Now, we don't have any proof that there was cheating going on, but we want you to know that we're continuing an investigation. If we find out who cheated on this exam then we are going to turn them into the office and you will be expelled from Hastings College. And everybody's looking around like, is she talking about me? If you find yourself saying, is, is he talking about me this morning? The answer is yes, Jesus is talking about you. And it's a good thing, okay? Parables are meant to be personal. You are in this story. You are, you, every single one of you, myself included. And these are present parables, they're meant to have you focus on now because you're going to see yourself maybe through different walks of life in any one of these four different types of soil. But Jesus wants you to examine your heart now so that you might change now and today. So let's look at these soils. Let's begin with the first three. Jesus, remember, he's saying, listen up because there are false ways to hear my message. And he outlines three here. And the first Jesus describes as a hard heart. Did you catch that in verse five? Jesus says, a sower went out to sow his seed and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. See, in the ancient world, many scholars believe that a, uh, a farmer would go out and in throwing his seed, he would throw his seed, and as he did, he would walk along a well-worn and beaten down path in the middle of his field. People would often, because you had to walk long distances in the ancient world, they had to cut through fields. So there were these well-worn paths often going through people's fields. And invariably, as the farmer is going out and sowing his seeds, some of these seeds are falling on this path. And you can tell that some of these seeds, obviously, because of the hardness of the path, that they would not penetrate the soil. And what Jesus says is all that happens to these seeds is that the birds of the air swoop down and they come and devour that seed. And Jesus explains what's going on here. He says, beginning in verse 11, that now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God and the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. In other words, when it comes to hearing the message of Jesus, what Jesus is saying is we are not on neutral territory. You guys watch sports, you watch the, the, the Super Bowl or you watch the college football national championship. You notice in those games, they always make sure that they're played on neutral turf, neutral territory, right? Because they don't want the home team or the away team. In the case of the NFL, they don't want the AFC team or the NFC team to have home field advantage. So they play on a neutral turf. And Jesus is saying, hey, that is not the case when it comes to hearing my message. You are not on neutral territory. And in fact, the one thing, the one thing that Jesus says, particularly that stands opposed to his message is the opposition of the human heart, a heart that he says has been hardened, a hardened heart. 
It's interesting, I was reading this recently. Social psychologists have this term, maybe you've heard of it, it's called confirmation bias. You heard of confirmation bias? It's this idea that our brains are wired such that if we hear something that contradicts a truth that we already believe or that we think is true, we automatically oppose it no matter what. And you can totally see this in kids, right? The other day, my daughter, McLean, she wakes up from uh, uh, the night sleeping and she comes out into the living room and she's hanging out with my son, Eli. And somehow the conversation turns to octopus, right? And they're talking about octopuses. And Lainey said, octopuses have three tentacles. And Eli, being a good first son, says, no, they don't. They have eight. She says, no, they don't. They have three. And you can imagine it went back and forth. No, no conflict was resolved there. I asked Lainey afterwards, by the way, how many tentacles an octopus had. She said 10. So <laughs> we still don't know. Did you notice something about this hardened heart that Jesus says here? Did you notice Jesus does not say that they lack information? Did you catch that? In verse 12, Jesus explicitly says that the ones along the path are those who have heard. See, what Jesus is saying is the people I'm describing here don't believe, not because they lack information. They know the message. Rather, these people don't believe because they already want Jesus' message to be false before it's ever given a hearing. Their problem is not intellectual. It's something going on deep in their heart. They have confirmation bias. D.A. Carson, he's a biblical scholar. He told a story of one of his really good friends who had a son who, after going to college, had many intellectual doubts as to Christianity. And this dad was really concerned, so he challenged his son. He said, hey, I want you to write down every intellectual critique that you have of Christianity. And I promise I will study. I will look into these things. And we will gather together. We will read books. And I want to go through point by point to show you that what Scripture says is intellectually credible. And so they did this. They did this for months and months on end. And at the end of this entire process, the son said to his dad, well, okay, maybe I was wrong. Maybe the claims of Jesus are more intellectually credible than I assumed. And so the dad looked at his son and said, well, then why don't you believe? He said, I don't want to. And see, here's the point. It's Jesus's point. A hard heart rarely stems from lack of information. It stems from a heart that ultimately what the apostle John said is a love of the world. John says this in John chapter 12 when he's talking about how Jesus, when he entered in Jerusalem, some people who were following him ultimately said, hey, we don't want any more of Jesus. He put it this way. He said, even the authorities believed in him, that's Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. In other words, a hard heart that refuses the message of Jesus does not stem from a lack of information, but from a desire to be approved by others. A heart that says things like this, well, what if I believe in that, then what will my friends say? Does that sound familiar? Or if I believe in that, what will my coworkers think? They're going to think I'm weird. What will my family think? My friends will stop talking and be talking about talking to me. And I want to be clear here, you may have serious and legitimate intellectual concerns when it comes to Christianity and the Bible and Jesus, and that's fine. And if that's you, we are glad that you're here and you are welcome here. In fact, Jesus says he's looking for people with childlike faith. You know what ch children do? They ask, why? 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 How come? Who's that person? Why does that person look so funny? Why is that person walking that way? 
Children's ask questions even when they are socially awkward and taboo. Children ask questions and God is not afraid of your questions, even of the ones that you think can't be asked. But it is, poss- is it possible that your biggest barrier to belief in Jesus is not an intellectual one? Jesus says the greatest barrier to receiving his message is not a lack of information, but a heart that is hardened because it loves the things of the world more than the things of God. And that's what the Bible calls sin. Sin, a moral problem. See, you want Christianity already to be untrue before you hear the message of it because in your heart, you do not want to let go to the thing you desire and love most, which is your own life on your own terms, what the Bible calls sin. And Jesus says, verse 12, to such a heart, he says, the ones along the path are those who have heard. And then the devil comes and takes it away so that the, the word from their heart, so that they may not believe and be saved. See, every time you reject the message of Jesus or dismiss thinking about Christianity, you are further hardening your heart and giving Satan, that's the devil, a foothold to simply snatch away the very message that would save you if you believed in it. So Jesus says, listen up. He who has ears to hear, that might be you this morning. Listen up. Listen up. Is that you? Is that you? Maybe you've been in here. I'd imagine there are a couple teenagers, because I was such a teenager, right, that you've heard this message over and over and over and over again, but you never give it second thought past Sunday morning. Maybe that's you. Jesus is saying, listen up. You are in this parable. You're in this parable. I'm in this parable. Where are the hard parts in your heart? Where are those hard parts that you do not want Jesus to get involved in because you think it might be too painful? Friends, you realize that a hardened heart is going to be far more painful and far more to your spiritual detriment and let in other than is going to be more to your spiritual detriment than if you were to just allow Jesus to come in and break the hardness of your heart. So Jesus says, that is the first barrier. A hard heart. He gives two more here, though. Two other false ways to hear. And Jesus describes them as rocky soil and soils infested by thorns. Verse 13. Jesus describes, he says, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. See, so Jesus is saying it's not just a hard heart and Satan that are barriers to his word penetrating hearts. He also says that there's these two soils, and his first is the rocky soil, right? And these soils, they're kind of like my kids when we tell them we want to go on a hike, right? We tell them at the house, hey guys, we're going to go on the hike. We're going to go up to Golden. We're going to go to Colorado, that Mesa, you know, we're going to hike that. And they get so excited. Yeah, let's do it. Let's get our tennis shoes on. Let's pack a cliff bar, right? We're going to do it. We're going to go conquer that mountain, Rocky Mountains. But you know, the very first thing that happens when they get out of the car and they actually look up at the trail, we got to do that. (laughs) Are you serious? We don't want to do that. It's hot. Dad, I forgot my water. No, we didn't. It's right here. I forgot something else. (laughs) It goes from joy to complete, utter demoralization. You've experienced that? And Jesus says, that's how some hear my message. They receive it with joy. They hear the message of free forgiveness, of God's 
unconditional love and they rejoice. But Jesus says, hey, listen, external joy does not necessarily translate into a saving response to my message. Jesus says that once these hearts are tested, they fall away. That word tested can also be translated temptation. But what I think Jesus has in mind here is the idea of refining metal. See, in the ancient world, you would get gold or what you would think was gold and you would put it into a fire. You would test it. And if it was true gold, all the dross and impurities would come off in these flames and in these fires. And when you pulled it out, it would luster and it would shine more than when it went in. But for that which proves to be false, when it faces the pressures of the flames and the fires and the temptations, when it's pulled out, it does nothing but melt. And that's what Jesus is saying here. For those whom Jesus describes here, he's saying they melt under the fires of testing and they ultimately file away. There's a second response and Jesus calls them thorns. And now these people, right, Jesus is saying, it's not so much that they see the trials and testings and and they lose that joy that they had to begin with. No, these people, Jesus says, they they actually have an attraction to Jesus. And, And this crop actually starts to grow up a little bit. But the distraction for them is not so much the trials and the testing because they they see Jesus, he's attractive, but instead their eyes get diverted and the cares of the world and the pleasures of life and the deceitfulness of riches choke out anything that had actually taken root. My son Eli loves Transformers, right? And he loves them so much. He has these toys that he he wants to play with all of them at once. So he's carrying like nine Transformers around at once. And he can't play with any of them because he doesn't want to get rid of any of them. If he would just let go of some and hold on to one, then he could actually play with them. But instead, he just walks around the house holding on to Transformers like this, right? Jesus said, these are the type of people who hear my message. They follow me, but at the end of the day, the hope of eternal life and forgiveness of sins and growth in a relationship with God and joy in the Holy Spirit are choked out by things like a pay raise that I don't want to get let go of. It means I would have to devote less time to work. So I I can't do that. I need to go up in the ladder so I can provide for my family or we need that next vacation because I'm just stressed out. I need to work toward that next vacation. I need an advanced degree so I can get a pay raise. They say, I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to know and respond to your message, but I just don't have time. Or I need to focus on this project. Or the end of the year, this time's really busy. This relationship is too important to give up. In sum, what Jesus is saying is this heart allows the secondary things of life to take precedence over the primary things of life. And it's not just big things, right? Those are big things. But it's actually those very small things that Jesus is also talking about here. John Calvin who's a commentator on this passage, said the human heart is a thick forest of thorns. And sometimes those thorns are manifest mostly in the small things of life. Are you like me? I wake up first thing in the morning and what's the first thing I grab for? My email. Distraction right away. The cares of this life rush in the moment my eyes open. Are you the type that reaches for that phone that scrolls through Instagram Or when you wake up, does a list immediately enter your head and say, I've got to do X, Y, and Z today. And if I don't get X, Y, and Z done today. See, we think thorns and we think the movie Jumanji. Remember when that big thorn, that big weed came out of the fireplace? If you were born in the 1990s, you know what I'm talking about, okay? Everybody else, I'm sorry. All right? We think, you know, this massive weed coming through and it's going to grab us and snare us and and, and destroy us. But Jesus is saying, no, these are more like roses, (laughs) Roses 
look pretty, they look attractive, they're just minor things, but they still have the same effect. They choke out the work God intends to produce in your life and in your heart. C.S. Lewis, I think, actually captures why this is so dangerous. He says, every time you make a choice, what you are doing is you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God or into one that is in a state of war and hatred against God. See, Lewis is just saying the same thing Jesus said 2,000 years ago, that it's not the major things in life that are the most distracting to the message of Jesus and allowing it to penetrate your heart. But it's those everyday small choices that affect your hearts the most. And it's those choices that will ultimately choke out the work that God intends to do in you. So don't you see, don't you see now why it is so important that Jesus said, listen up. Because it's not just philosophical atheists or agnostics that stand outside the kingdom of God. What Jesus says, it's regular people. It's regular Joe. It's well-intentioned people, busy, hardworking people. And now you might be thinking, well, then Jesus, why tell us this in a parable? Why don't you just tell us that directly so we didn't have to pry into these things? Why don't you just say it clearly? If it's that important, why teach in parables? Well, Jesus does speak plainly and he does so regularly. When it comes to the gospel accounts, Jesus could not be more clear about who he is. Jesus says, I am the son of God. I am the king of creation. I am the one who created you. He said, I am the one to whom every single person will have to give an account of their life. And when it came to his mission, Jesus was even more clear. Three times he tells his disciples, three times, I did not come to be served, but as the king of the kingdom of God, I came to come and serve you, to die as a ransom for many, to die for your sins so that you might find forgiveness in me. Jesus could not be more clear. And he couldn't be more clear as to our response. You know, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth were repent and believe in me for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is saying, do you want to enter this kingdom? You have to turn away from the thorns. You have to turn away from the hardened heart that doesn't want to believe this message because you know it might be too uncomfortable. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So why parables then? Well, Jesus tells us in verse nine. Listen to what he says. It's very insightful. And when his disciples asked him, what does this parable mean? He said, to you, that is the disciples. That's emphatic. He says, to you, disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But do you notice who's not around? The crowd. The crowd that had gathered is not in this picture. And he says this, but for others... They are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing, they may not understand. See, Jesus says that a parable works on people in a special way. For those who sincerely desire to know Jesus and want to follow him, people like those women. Remember the women we talked about that were following him around? Remember those 12 that he was talking to? It's interesting, in the gospel accounts, it's not those who are at the top and at the center that understand Jesus' message. No, it's usually those who are at the bottom and on the margins. And Jesus says, those who sincerely desire to know me and want to learn more, they receive the secret of the kingdom. In other words, they receive Jesus' message and respond. They actually receive what is required to turn from their sins and respond to Jesus, which is the Holy Spirit. 
But for those who superficially desire to know Jesus, they see, but they never see, and they hear, but they never understand. One Puritan put it this way. He said, the same sun melts the butter and hardens the clay. And the parables of Jesus are like a scorching sun. For one group, they hear and they respond. They are softened to the message. For another, they harden themselves further and further and further. In other words, Jesus tells us that these parables, because he wants to jolt us into action. He wants us to respond to him and his message. That's why he says, if you have hears to hear, let him hear and respond. You probably heard this quote. I don't know who said it, which means everybody said it, right? The longest distance in the entire world is the 18 inches that separate your head from your heart. You ever heard that? See, Jesus could have just told us information, but instead he wanted to illustrate something so he could drive it home to your heart so that you could see yourself in this parable and respond. And to respond. I love what Soren Kierkegaard says. He says, parables deceive us into the truth, right? It's not a frontal attack. It's an attack that sneaks in through the bathroom window and stabs you in the back, right? In the best way possible. It deceives you into the truth. Jesus in this parable is not saying anything new, is he? He's not saying anything new that the Bible doesn't already show us. We have hard hearts. Where do we see that? Romans 1.18, that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why? Because we love unrighteousness. But Jesus adds an exclamation point to that very truth. It's what he's doing in a parable. We know there's thorns in our heart. We don't even need the Bible to tell us that, right? Everybody knows that riches and the pleasures of life can't satisfy us, but Jesus wants to give an an exclamation point to tell you that fact. And you're never going to know this until you face it square in the face like a mirror. Seinfeld fans, remember when Elaine realizes she is a horrible dancer? Or golf fans, when... Uh, Charles Barkley was actually watching his swing for the very first time. If you've ever seen that, you can go look it up online. It's not a pleasant sight. See, because sometimes you have to see it to believe it. Jesus wants you to see it. He wants you to see it. So he gives you this parable and he says, listen up. And now Jesus says, last point, there's only one true way to hear. It's illustrated in the last soil. Verse 15. As for that in the good soil, they are those who hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. That's the last soil. You guys ever watch pro football, right? You, you know what that word means, hold it fast. What, what a modern understanding of that would be today. When you watch a football player, a cornerback, right, intercept a pass, how do they hold the ball? They never catch the ball. So they're running down the field after they intercept it like it's a loaf of bread. And you can just see it coming, right? Here comes the wide receiver that it was just intercepted from and he comes up right behind him and he strips it. But then on the other hand, you watch a running back get that same football and he holds it like it's a two-week infant, doesn't he? I mean, he holds it so tight like it's gassy in the middle of the night, okay? (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Jesus says, unless you hold fast the word of God, hold it fast as if your life depended on it because it does, then you will never understand it. You have to embrace this message, sit under it in a humble and teachable heart. And I actually think the key to this parable is when Jesus says this word. He says it's an honest heart. An honest heart. It's an honest heart that sees there are still hard parts 
in their own heart, parts rebelling against God and are still indifferent to his message. See, an honest heart says that. An honest heart says, yeah, there are places that I just don't want to go. There, there are areas in my life where I don't want Jesus to work. It's a heart that sees, yeah, you know what? My joy is oftentimes superficial and shallow. My heart has a devotion that is often shallow and weak and is often quenched out when I feel the first signs of temptation and trial. An honest heart is one that sees there are still thorns in my heart and I have no power to remove them myself. That's an honest heart. And that honest heart sincerely holds fast to the word of God because it knows it points, that word points to the only one who is powerful enough to soften hearts, to remove rocks and to remove thorns. And that is the person of Jesus. See, that's what the word of God points to. It points to Jesus who says, you do not have enough power in your own heart to overcome what I'm talking about here. You need the sower. Isn't that interesting? You notice in your Bibles, it's entitled the parable of the sower, but the entire time we've been talking about soils. It's because it's ironic. The sower is the only one who can actually do anything to affect the soil. That sower is Jesus. Jesus is the point of this parable. He wants you to see that there is no power in yourself to remove these factors. You have to cast yourself wholly upon him and him alone. I believe Jesus intends this parable to be a warning. It is a warning to all of us because he loves us. That if you don't see the hard, shallow, and thorny parts of your heart, you are on the wrong path. And the reason is this, because the only requirement to coming to Jesus for healing and forgiveness is knowing that you are needy. See, it's those who don't see a problem who say, I'm fine, I'm okay. It's those who are in the greatest spiritual danger. The only requirement to coming to Jesus for healing and forgiveness is knowing that this heart is yours and knowing that you need something to remedy it. And it's in those kind of hearts that God produces a hundredfold. See, the gospel message is this. The gospel message, according to one author, he puts it this way. We are more sinful and flawed, more filled with thorns and rocks and hardness than we ever in ourselves ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. (laughs) Friends, it's the sower. It's the sower at the same time who exposes the sin in your heart, but also calls you sinners, come to me. Come to me all who thirst. Come to me all without money and buy. Come and receive free forgiveness of sins in my death and resurrection. That's Jesus' offer to you. I told you that this was dangerous and it's dangerous precisely because this message is an offense to all human pride and pretense. To anybody who says, I'm okay, I'm okay. Friends, Jesus' warning is, no, 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 you are not okay. But there is a savior. There is a remedy greater than you can ever imagine. And he's asking you, come to him, come to him. You'll never seek healing until you realize that there is a diagnosis. Friends, here's your diagnosis. Here's your diagnosis. And you need that remedy. That remedy is Jesus Christ, his sacrificial death on your behalf. Run to him. Run to the sower. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Father, we acknowledge that this is our descriptions of our own hearts and we thank you that you love us enough to warn us enough, to shock us enough, to show us that we need a remedy. Jesus, it wasn't those who were on the inside, those who were at the center of society and on top of society that were insiders in your kingdom and said it was those outsiders, those who realized they were deeply flawed in and of themselves, but realized they needed something more than themselves to become insiders. So Jesus, I pray for those who are on the outside this morning, that you would soften their hearts, that the message of the gospel like butter would soften them and they would receive you, Jesus. And God, I pray for those who need encouragement this morning, who need encouragement to know that their sin, their thorns, their hardness, their rocks are not barriers to entry into your kingdom. In fact, they are the very things that if we recognize them will help us embrace what is needed to enter your kingdom, which is you and your son, Jesus. And we pray all these things in his name by the power of your spirit, amen.